Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination. Hi, I'm Nina Karnikovsky, and I'm a traveller who loves wild, remote destinations and discovering ways to make our travels kinder to the earth. My guest today is the Australian travel writer and author Nina Karnikovsky, who traverses the globe in search of wild, off-the-beaten-path places and stories that promote slower and more sustainable ways to travel. Nina's well-worn passport has no shortage of stamps as she's visited over 60 countries, travelling to many of them on assignment for Australia and New Zealand's top publications, as well as documenting her journeys on her own blog, Travels with Nina. In this episode, we'll explore how Nina carved out her own career as a travel writer and hear all about her recently released book, Make a Living Living, that will inspire you to live a life less ordinary. Join Nina on her enchanting, eco-conscious adventures, from Australia's bohemian heartland of Byron Bay to a traditional weaving workshop in a small village in Guatemala. We'll also uncover a few cultural gems, such as an underground Ethiopian jazz club in Addis Ababa and an Art Deco Bollywood cinema in the heart of Bombay, before we hit the road in Namibia towards a windswept shoreline strewn with whale bones and shipwrecks along the ethereal skeleton coast. Here's Nina Karnikovsky. Hi, Nina. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Edwina. How are you? Oh, very, very good. Nina, I always love reading your stories from dreamy, faraway places around the world in the newspaper, in the magazines you contribute to, and on your blog, Travels with Nina. And I've been really looking forward to our conversation. And who knows, during this episode, we might even be able to demystify the world of travel writing for our listeners. But before we begin, where in the world are you? I am at home in Bangalore, which is in the hinterland above Byron Bay. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. That's such a picturesque pocket of the world to call home. It is. We've been here for a couple of years now and, you know, there are koalas in the trees outside. We have a little resident echidna in our garden and there are whales and dolphins in the ocean and it's all pretty dreamy. I mean, you know, you lack a bit of of culture here, but definitely the nature makes up for it. Oh, that sounds like paradise. So what are some of your favorite things to do in Byron? Well, I'm big into hiking. So uh, there are some national parks like Goonangari National Park and Minion Falls and a place called Killen Falls where I go to seek out waterfalls and things. And of course, the very famous Lighthouse Walk. I love that. And I did that with a friend last night at dusk. And it's just so beautiful to see you know, the very pink sunset and all the lights twinkling on in Byron. And then, you know, there's just some fantastic places to eat and drink as well. So that's another highlight for me. Have you got a a hot tip of a a great place to go and eat for any visitors going to Byron? (laughs) I do. Yeah. I mean, if you can be willing to wait three months for a table, I would suggest trying to get into Fleet because it's one of the best meals that I have had in my life. Um, 
sort of a multi-course, all local, everything done by scratch. So it's a really, really hot ticket in town. Um, and then there's another one called Pippet, which is a similar sort of a thing and just absolutely delicious. So they're my two favorites at the moment. And then for something more casual, there's the Roadhouse, which is a low-lit, great music bar and casual restaurant, which I love. Nina, you are living the good life, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I try. I try to make life at home as um, interesting as it is on the road, which isn't always that easy. That's so true. And it's something that I'm keen to dive into a discussion about a little further along in this episode. But the first question I have for you comes from the realization that for so many of my trips, the desire to travel to a certain destination was sparked by something that I'd seen, I'd read, or I'd listened to that really conjured up something in my imagination. For example, when I was about 12, I was really enchanted with Frida Kahlo and her artwork. And finally, when I was old enough and I'd left school and saved up enough money to visit Mexico City, I headed straight to Casa Azul, that brightly painted blue house that Frida Kahlo used to live in, just to see the art studio and the exotic gardens for myself. And so my question for you, is there a book a film, a song, or piece of art that has inspired you to travel somewhere? I love this question and I love your anecdote about Frida Kahlo (laughs) because I really, I feel so the same as you. I mean, I think that there's always those things that really spark that desire in us in the journey. That means that the journey has a really long life because it actually begins in those dreaming stages when you're first thinking about it and, you know, you have that first spark. So, For me, the Ethiopian jazz of Mulatu Astatke, anybody who hasn't heard that, it's he's like the king of Ethiopian jazz in the 1960s and he's still alive now. But that inspired me to travel to Ethiopia. Okay, wow. Yeah, and it was actually, I knew nothing about Ethiopia, but when I started listening to that music, my husband and I really got into it. And that was really the spark. And I ended up taking my husband there as a surprise for his 40th birthday. Mm -hmm. And we got to see some of these musicians play live in something called an Asmari Bet, which is a, it's like an underground bar. And there's only a couple of them left in the capital, Addis Ababa. But I'll Mm -hmm. tell you, it was the best night of our lives. We walked into this Asmari bet and there's like this beautiful woman serving Ethiopian coffee with like clouds of frankincense burning all around her. And then we walk in, there's an open fire in the courtyard, there's straw on the ground and Ethiopians are the most incredible dancers. So there are these dancers performing live and everybody else is around partying. And it was just the coolest bar I have been to anywhere in the world. It's called Fendika, if anybody happens to be in Addis Ababa. Uh, and that I was... think a lot of people from that description will be heading there. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they have to. It really is such an underrated destination that people are discovering now. But you can tell that it's undiscovered because the level of, of you know, hotels and lodges and things is not quite what it is in other parts of Africa but is one of the only two nations in Africa that was never colonized. So the culture there is so incredibly rich and unique, and I just cannot wait to get back there. It really has been one of the 
best destinations for me. I've seen images of those rock-hewn mm. churches and that, I mean, it just looks absolutely incredible. Did you visit that part as well? Yes, yeah. So we timed the visit in time for Orthodox Christmas, which actually happens at a, on a different date than our Christmas. So it is basically 200,000 pilgrims arrive in Lalibela, where those rock churches are, for Christmas. And we were there at that time. These, these rock-hewn churches are 900 years old. So can you just picture this? We're there on Christmas Eve, 200,000 pilgrims, all wrapped in Ethiopian white cotton, we are walking over these 12 meter high cliffs in the darkness with just all of these pilgrims holding candles and Bibles all around us chanting. There are 500 priests down in the church below us chanting with these Orthodox, big, beautiful silver Orthodox crosses in their hands. There was frankincense in the air. And to top it all off, we then saw an exorcism happen right in front of us. There, this woman sort of started having me. Yeah, started having this kind of fit, and then one of the priests kind of walk over, and he and he's throwing, um, like I guess it was holy water at her, and putting his hand on her head, and she's convulsing, and he's putting the Bible on her head, and he's chanting on her, and it was just a scene that you cannot imagine. And yeah, Lalibela is incredible. We spent a few days exploring and they call it the Petra of Ethiopia. And Mm -hmm. it really is that impressive. And they say that angels uh, helped create these, these churches all that time ago. And it really, it kind of defies the imagination when you look at them. So um, yeah, it's something everybody has to see at least once in their lifetime. That sounds like one of the most magical Christmases imaginable and so different from sort of that European snow-covered Christmas. This is just so exciting, so exotic and different. But let's rewind a little bit because I'm curious to know if you have a travel memory from your childhood that you vividly remember. Mm. Let's get to know little Nina. Uh, Little Nina was uh, not very intrepid. Um, My my family did a lot. I mean, this was the 80s, you know, so it was a lot of road trips, you know, road trips in the station wagon going up the coast Sometimes down the coast, we would go to places like Barrington Tops and, you know, we'd go up to Queensland, to Noosa, to the Gold Coast, little camping trips sometimes, which I hated because I was <laughs> terrified of nature and everything, which my mum thinks it's very ironic now that I, you know, that I love nature and I used to spend all this time doing all these crazy things around the world in nature because I was even scared of puppy dogs and kittens and things like that. And oh, wow. I have so a real transformation from when you were a child. Yeah, real transformation. Yeah. I think that that is so relatable for many Australians because a lot of your youth is spent doing those road trips and exploring Australia before you go out and see the rest of the world. Whereas if you grow up in Europe, you're doing car trips and you cross through maybe like five countries in one yes. in one holiday. So did you know when you were young that you wanted to become a travel writer? Well, 
Not when I was young, because as I say, I was terrified of everything. And, you know, I think I wanted to be a ballerina or something, despite the fact that I was very uncoordinated. So (laughs) it wasn't until I really went to France and then I continued my French studies at university when I was doing um, journalism and international studies. And Mm -hmm. as part of that international studies, degree I spent a year living in the south of France and that was really when it all began and I decided okay that's the side of journalism that I really want to try to get into one day mm-hmm. and when I was at journalism school I would say oh I want to be the next Katrina Roundtree and <laughs> I think every girl of that generation <laughs> I know <laughs> for context Katrina Roundtree is an Australian travel presenter who was huge in the 90s yes and so yeah she just had this dream job on a show called The Getaway that I think a lot of little girls would just think oh she has the best life. But in in some ways, you know, there's this myth of being a travel writer, as I find that people always say to me, oh, you're always on holiday or you're on another vacation. (laughs) And although my job is a great privilege and I'm the first to acknowledge that, it is also a lot of work and requires dedication and at times some sacrifices. And of course, when I am on an actual holiday, I can't help but work because I think, oh, there's a story in this or I'll get up at sunrise to capture a photograph. And you can never really switch off. Do you feel the same way? I feel exactly the same way. That's exactly how it is. I remember going uh, to Vanuatu a few years ago and my husband and I just really needed some time away and some time to focus on our relationship and all those sorts of things. And of course, as soon as we got on this beautiful remote island called Rotua, where, you know, there were like horses running around and their own coral reefs and only about four rooms on the whole island, I thought, okay, I have to do this as a story and then spend the rest (laughs) of the time sort of running around trying to do that. So I think that's very true. And, you know, this is not a job for everybody. I would say that because if you are a creature of habit or if you really love if you really need your sleep for example Mm -hmm. that's another thing then it's not for you because you know you're always in different time zones you are always um you are really on when you are there and there's no such thing as saying oh I don't really feel like doing that or that's not really for me because you really have to be up for anything Mm -hmm. and you have to be very curious and you have to uh, always always want to do the things that, that you're being offered and often assignments might be thrown to you a week before. Yeah, exactly. I remember when I went to Antarctica, my editor just sort of sent me a one-line email just saying, do you want to go to Antarctica next week? And just sort of (laughs) going, well, yeah, sure. Um, Maybe I would have liked to think about that a little longer before I went and did it, but sure. And you just have to be willing to get up and go and to, you know, maybe not have that much time to prepare. Absolutely. I had the same thing when I went to Antarctica. I was given very little notice. Mm. I had more notice than you, but I was leaving for a a sort of month-long trip around South America And um, I remember just being like, oh, this is a trip of a lifetime. I really, really want to go to Antarctica, but I have to get all my gear ready and then also carry all my, you know, winter gear, Antarctica expedition gear around with me in summer in South America. So my suitcase just became absolutely insane. (laughs) Yeah. 
But it happened. I pulled it together in the end. Yes, because you're a travel <laughs> writer and that's what we do. Yeah, that's true. You have to be you have to be flexible and yes. just willing to to drop anything and, and go somewhere into the unknown. Mm-hmm. So what type of travel do you write about, Nina? Well, I love very wild remote destinations mm-hmm. and I'm always seeking places that people don't know much about. And more recently, I've developed a fascination with ways in which we can be more sustainable and hopefully even regenerative travelers. So, you know, involve conservation, those sorts of things. Mm, it's um, definitely something that people are thinking more and more about, particularly sustainability. That is something that in the industry, I felt like at the beginning, it was a little bit token. And now people are really getting their heads around it and figuring out how can we be a more sustainable traveller. Because it's it's so much more than just reducing the amount of flights that you take. So for you, in the things that you've learnt along this journey of, you know, learning how to be a more conscious and sustainable traveller, what have you changed in the way that you travel? Well, First of all, it it kind of started for me when I went to the Arctic last Mm -hmm. year and I saw the polar bears, I saw what was happening to them, I saw the fact that they, because of of climate change, they don't have as much to eat and so the populations are declining and just seeing all that firsthand and seeing a few things with the way that the travel industry is run in the Arctic, you know, for example, our boat kind of going quite close to the polar bears who then were trying to swim away from us. Just some things like that that really stick in your mind. So Mm. when I got back from that trip, I thought, okay, I need to be doing things differently. You know, travel, I mean, it is responsible for about 8% of the world's carbon emissions and degrading wilderness areas and over-touristed towns and all those sorts of things. But it is also a big lifeline for people. You know, it's one in 10 jobs around the world. It teaches us things like tolerance and it broadens our worldviews and takes us out of our comfort zones and, you know, really gives us this deeper understanding of ourselves and the planet itself. So because of all of those things, I think that it's something we should absolutely all continue to do. But yes, more slow travels and less trips. Mm -hmm. So instead of taking five trips a year, you know, I think it would be very beneficial if we could all say do one or two trips a year. We take longer periods of time so that we can make a more important impact in those places. You know, also using local companies where the money is going to directly to the local communities and also being very conscious about the kind of trips that we take. You know, I did this incredible trip to Namibia last year. Mm -hmm. And it was a road trip. So it was quite slow. It was three weeks and we just traveled through one part of Namibia up north and by road the whole time. And it was so beautiful because we went to different lodges that employed, you know, up to 90% of the local community who otherwise would have no employment available to them in these very remote areas. So these lodges were not only financially benefiting those communities, but it was also empowering them and teaching them skills that they hadn't had before. And often the lodges were um, were combined also with a conservation project. So seeing things like that and writing about things like that is really what lights me up and gives me hope for for the kind of travels that we could all really be doing 
in the future. And, and by doing that, you're not really missing out on anything. In fact, you gain so much because when you travel slowly, you travel over land, by car or by train, you see the world just pass you by through the window. Mm. And in Namibia, I can imagine you've got those barren, sand-swept landscapes and that scorched dead tree valley. You know, you're, you're seeing these most incredible things and taking your time to do so. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Namibia because that's mm. a place that People are starting to talk about a lot more, but it's still not the first place people think of when they think of Africa. Yeah, look, it's. I think I initially had wanted to go there when, probably about a decade before I got there. I watched this incredible documentary called Babies, which mm-hmm. follows the first year of a baby's life in four nations around the world. There are no words to this documentary. It's just the mother and the child, and I saw the Himba tribe the first time in that documentary, which are a tribe that live up north in Namibia, and it's one of the last untouched tribes really in the world, and I knew that I wanted to go and visit them, and it took 10 years to get there, wow, but yeah. it was worth the wait. It was so incredible. To It took about two days of driving to get to the tribe, uh, and it was they're they're just so beautiful these women they have they're covered in a mixture of ochre and fat I believe and they they put this paste all over their skin in order to protect themselves from the sun and from insects and things yeah Mm. and they have the most beautiful adornments and I spent some time with these women over the course of a day and learned about the way they lived and had a very hilarious interaction with them because when they discovered that I was married but I was 36 and didn't have a child, they were just so incredibly confused. They, <laughs> they said to me, but, but wait, but why don't you have one? I said, well, you know, it just it hasn't happened yet. Okay, but if it hasn't, get another husband. Just have an, go with another husband because 36 for them is the age of a grandmother. So what yeah. was I doing all alone across the other side of the world traveling around at the age of a grandmother with no child and it was just this stark contrast between you know they've each got sort of 10 children each or something like that and just just that I that's what I love about traveling to these sorts of communities really questioning like well wow so what are my values and Mm -hmm. and where do those values come from and how do their values differ from my own and what does it mean to live a good life and and who who really has it right do any of us have it right and that was a destination that really brought that up for me and I mean then of course the incredible natural beauty in Namibia the skeleton coast is this wild remote coast with sort of whale bones and shipwrecks and all these sorts of things and because of the temperature difference between the ocean and a current that's coming through, there's this incredible mist that rolls through that area. So because of the very temperamental Atlantic Ocean there, there were a lot of shipwrecks. And That sounds so eerie. Yes, and when you drive there from a place called the Huanib Valley, which is close to where those Himba tribes are, it sort of takes mm-hmm. all day to drive in. So you're going from these bright blue skies in the desert and then you get to the coast and the mist rolls in. And I stayed at a place called Shipwreck Lodge there, which is so oh, stunning. I think I've seen photos of that. Oh, it looks like shipwrecks, you know, oh and gosh. they and they're sort of getting half submerged in the sand and it's just comes out of nowhere and it's all 
you know, there's jackals kind of running through the dunes and you can hike down to the ocean and have lunch by the ocean, but then the sky is all gray and it's very, very moody and beautiful. So otherworldly. Mm, yes. You know, those sort of places that you're going to, they're so visually incredible. Is there a destination that, you know, you went to that really inspired you creatively? Oh my gosh. I mean, they all do in some way. This is the thing about travel and why it's so essential to a creative life. But last year I did go to Guatemala in Central America for a trip with a company called Thread Caravan, who does specifically these very small creative workshops throughout Central and South America. And so this was a weaving trip. So I learned how to weave on a backstrap loom from women who had been basically weaving the same way since pre-Columbian times. And it was so beautiful. So we were at Lake Atitlan, which is about three hours out of the capital. And we went to these little cooperatives around the lake, this beautiful big lake. And there are all these little Mayan villages around there. So go to these small co-ops and learn different skills each day. So one day it was learning how to spin raw cotton and the next day it was learning how to naturally dye with a thing called cochineal, which is these little insects basically that grow on cactus and then they dry them and scrape them off. And so the women would show us how to do that and then boil it in water and it comes out as this bright pink colour that just has the most amazing impact on the cotton thread. And then for the last two days, we were weaving on these looms. And I mean, this is an art that needs to be kept alive. And so that's when we're talking about sustainable and regenerative travel. I mean, that is the kind of thing that I'm talking about, these small trips that are teaching us a skill, but it's also impacting the local community. These women you know, I mean, Guatemala had a very bloody 30-year civil war. And so a lot of these women lost their husbands, their brothers, their fathers. And this is a way that they can keep making money and keep their traditions alive. So a lot of the women in Guatemala today still wear their creations that they weave. So it's these brightly kaleidoscopically colored whippeel blouses and skirts and sashes and head wraps and things. So unfortunately, I didn't get to the point where I could create one of those because they are extremely intricate and take like two months to create. <laughs> You'd have but to spend a bit longer over there to do yeah, so. Maybe yeah, maybe like three years or something. But <laughs> I but I did create this one little wall hanging that, you know, I gave to my niece and it was just such a beautiful thing to do and a skill that I know that I will, you know, a trip and a skill that will stay with me now forever. And then all of that really feeds into the creative life back home. So you're obviously really drawn to these creative communities and local artisans, which actually brings me to, I wanted to ask you about your recently released, um, your first book, Make a Living Living, which actually tells the stories of these inspiring individuals from around the world who have passionately carved out their creative dream careers. What was the inspiration behind this book? Well, the fact basically that I was asked so many times by people, oh, how did you become a travel writer and how does that go? And I thought, okay, I I understand that question because I often look at Instagram and look at all these people who I admire on there and think exactly the same thing. 
And so I thought, why not write a book that is profiling 26 people from around the world who've made a living doing what they love, people Mm -hmm. like a woodcarver living on a remote island or a Japanese tiny home builder or a knitter who divides her time between New Zealand and Peru or a travel photographer who goes to remote destinations. These people, how did they start doing what they do? What kind of finances were involved in in that? What kind of challenges did they face? How much willpower, how much vision was involved in that? Because I think social media has a lot to answer for in, in making people think that it's a lot easier to do things than it actually is. You know, you look at people's photos and you think, gosh, that looks just so simple, but actually it takes a lot of hard work and tenacity and all those sorts of things. So I wanted to both show people that, but also give them tips and some exercises in mm-hmm. order to create their own, um, you know, living, to living. unleash their creativity. I'm, I'm resting it. my hand on a copy of the book now. It's mm. absolutely beautiful. I love oh, it. Thank you. What did you learn through the global community of creatives that you met and interviewed along the way? Like what was the biggest takeaway for you? I think the biggest takeaway was that you learn the most by doing the thing, which sounds so simple, but you really do, you you really do just have to take that leap. And I noticed that it's a very small world because one of the couples that you feature in your book that take that leap is the French husband and wife from Riyadh Jardin Cyclair in Marrakesh. And I actually stayed with them many (gasps) years ago in their beautiful Riyadh that's hidden away behind a heavy door in the narrow maze-like alleyways of the Marrakesh Medina. So yeah, I met them a long while back and I remember that they were originally in the French fashion industry and then decided on a whim to relocate and renovate a Riyadh in Morocco. So can you tell us a little bit more about their creative journey? Yes, so Cyril and Julien and... They are, I'm so jealous that you got to go and stay with them because I actually haven't. Okay. And yeah, I just had always followed them on Instagram, which is actually where I found quite a lot of people in the book. Um, And I just was so intrigued by them. I mean, these, this couple lives and breathes creativity. They have created their Riyadh, yes, but also, you know, she does this flower arranging and analog photography and he does up old Harley Davidsons. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they they were so fascinating because they they sort of said, you know, we didn't we didn't tell anybody what we were doing because we knew that they would there would be naysayers who would try to stop us from doing this thing that seemed incredibly crazy putting all our money into this property that, you know, it may or may not work and leaving behind these successful careers in a country where everything had been easy for them. But they mm. said, we just knew that we had to do this thing. And they so they made it work no matter what. Mm, I certainly noticed the passion behind the project, the attention to detail, and the interior design was just magnificent. They had those green Moroccan tiles and a lush garden and cacti everywhere. And there was this sun deck at the top that was strewn with colourful Moroccan textiles and cushions that you could sit on and drink the Moroccan mint tea. And then you'd overlook this rose-hued Marrakesh skyline, Mm. which is punctuated by minarets. And it was just magical. And then, of course, the couple would hang around the Riyadh themselves, chatting with the guests who come from all corners of the globe 
And I think that they even host artists um, who come and stay and do a residency. Um, Yeah, so it's just such a dreamy lifestyle. And I know when I was there, I was imagining what it would be like to pack up my life and renovate an old Riyadh in Morocco for myself. So it was just so inspiring. And so many of us fantasize about creating a completely new life and moving somewhere wildly exotic. And a while back, you spent a year living in Mumbai. Why Mumbai? And what drew you there? Oh, I love that segue because, yes, it's, it's, it is one of those things. I mean, Mumbai, I had just started travel writing about six months before that. And like you, I had, you know, I had done some trips where I had gone and thought, oh gosh, I would love to do this. I would love to just take that chance and go and do that. So Mm -hmm. I guess that seed was planted. And then my husband actually, because we had started thinking, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to live in India? So he actually got a job art directing the Indian version of GQ. So I got to travel around the country. You know, I did, went hiking in Ladakh and traveled through Rajasthan for that real Darjeeling limited experience and seeing mm. all the men in the in the neon turbans with the big curly mustaches and staying mm. in palaces in Udaipur and Jodhpur and and those are uh, jewel colored saris oh, billowing behind yes. the back of motorbikes and there's so much poetry in that part of the world oh that it's it you know staying in ashrams in Rishikesh and Kerala and having all these spiritual experiences that I had always dreamt of having. And I thought, you know, you've got one life. Why not just take a chance? And I mean, my husband had to take an insanely terrible pay cut in order to go and do that job. But we thought, hey, we can do it. Why not do that instead of following the the well-trodden path? And we're so incredibly glad we did. Of course you would be. What an amazing way to spend a year. And I remember the first time I visited Mumbai as a 15-year-old, it was an overwhelming metropolis. I mean, an assault on the senses, Mm. the noise, the chaos, the smells, the heat. How did you cope with arriving there? It's not like moving from Sydney to London. This is Bombay. How (laughs) did you settle in and create your life there? Oh, well, look, we had never been to India before. We had never traveled really to a third world country before. You're joking. So you're moving there and never been there. You know, that is that is truly adventurous. Uh, yeah, we just figured, you know, well, I think it would be great. Let's see. Um, and it was, look, it was the highs and the lows. Anyone who has ever traveled to India will tell you, you know, it's this, always the same story. It's like you start the day crying with happiness and you end up crying out of frustration or Mm -hmm. sadness and it's all those emotions all at once and you know just that I remember you know leaving the house to go and get say some garlic from the local market which was five minutes away and just having to say to my husband look I might be five minutes I might be five hours you just don't know (laughs) what will happen you might walk out the door and there's a cow in your way and then and then you walk five meters up the road and somebody stops you and they want you to come in and have lunch with them and you can't say no and then you go around the next corner and somebody you know is trying to string some marigolds on a necklace for you and put that on you and then Mm -hmm. oh It's just this constant sort of chaos. For those who aren't familiar with Mumbai, what should they do or see to get a real feel for the city? 
Mm, oh my gosh, it's such an amazing city. I mean, it, it's an amazing city and it's an overwhelming city. So mm. you do need some kind of advice. So what? here are my favorite things to do there. So I would say you have to start the day at the Dada flower market at sunrise. This is famous flower market where there's just hundreds of stalls overflowing with, you know, marigolds and roses and lotus flowers and jasmine. And it's just so beautiful to photograph and to just meet all the locals and they want to share their flowers with you. And it's just, um, it's a very special experience. Mm. Um, I would say you have to get a head massage at a place called Touch of Joy in Calaba, which is um, sort of the main area where you would be spending time as a traveler. Um, you Sounds know, like if, you probably need a head massage after all the craziness and you chaos do. of the city. <laughs> exactly. But it's like, it, this is where the Bollywood stars go to for the very steep price in Indian terms of $20. It's just so beautiful and relaxing. And then you need to get a boat ride over to Elephant Island, which is a world heritage site. And it's you get on these crazy old ferries that take you across there. And you see these eighth and ninth century cave temples that are just, you know, with all the carved deities, these huge carved deities, which is really special. It must feel like a little bit of a reprieve from the traffic and everything getting out to the island. Yeah, it really, yeah. it really does. And I think you need to have that break in Mumbai. Yeah. And speaking of which, I think you can duck off for a Bollywood film at the Regal Cinema, which Ooh, is this. I love Bollywood. Yeah, so it's like. You know, even if you can't understand it, it's all the singing and the dancing and all of that. And it's in a beautiful Art Deco building, which people might not know this about Mumbai, but they have a really incredible Art Deco architecture scene there. So you can walk around and just have a look at all those beautiful 1930s buildings as well. And of course, food is another big thing. And if you want to try street food style, there's a place called Swati Snacks. It's been serving what they call chaat, which is this Indian street style snacks since the 1960s. And they have things like pani puri, which is these deep fried pastry stuffed with chutney and potato and herbs and spices. Ooh, oh, and like hand churned ice creams. And kulfi, is it called kulfi, the Indian ice cream? It's a special. Uh, yes. Um, and it comes in flavors like saffron and yes, pistachio. Yes, and... yes. It's so delicious. And so that's a really good place. And also I would say, you know, it's important to stay somewhere that really speaks to the destination and that is locally owned, which I always think is important. And there is a hotel there called Abode, mm. which is in this heritage building. And it's actually really affordable, but every single thing in there, is artisan made so the tiles are made locally all the furniture has been you know it's uh salvaged and done up vintage furniture there's all this beautiful photography of all the you know the local street sellers and things on the walls and they do things like they employ female taxi drivers and they have blind masseuses so they are really trying to empower the local community and um yeah it's a very very special hotel that I can't wait to return to. Oh, they are fantastic recommendations. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. It's always great to get an insider's take on how to get under the skin of a city, especially one like Bombay. And I mm. recommend anyone who's listening who hasn't visited India um, and wants to go, don't miss out on Mumbai on your itinerary because it is just so intoxicating. Now, Nina, I'm curious. You've been to so many places. You've got so many stamps in your passport and journeyed to far-reaching parts of the world. 
Where is the strangest place that you've spent the night?、Mm, I like that question.、Um, I would say that what jumps out front of mind for me is a homestay that I did in Nepal. And we got to stay in a very ancient town called Panauti, which is at the confluence of two sacred rivers. So there's, it's just the whole town is filled with these ancient temples and there's ceremonies happening everywhere. And we stayed with this family who were just so lovely and welcoming. And, you know, there were pigeons flying around their kitchen and, and、yeah. there were, you know, a few mice scurrying around. But I actually had the most incredible time and spent a lot of time cooking with the mother and, you know, walking around town with the daughters and hearing about all their hopes and dreams. And I think being able to really just slip. Into local life like that through something like a homestay is really, really special. And look, I mean, for work, I have stayed in a lot of incredible, luxurious hotels and things like that. But I think that local immersion just trumps that every time.、Mm, yeah. And as you say, they're the sort of relationships that you can continue to grow well、yes. after you've left the destination. And ones that you'll cherish forever. So that is so, so special and something that cookie cutter hotels simply cannot <laughs> replicate. Another way to relive a trip long after returning home is by collecting souvenirs. Are you someone who collects memorabilia or special pieces to remind you of the places that you've traveled to? I do. I'm a bit of a bowerbird. Like, I'm very big on getting sort of beautiful pieces that have been handmade by local communities. I think it's always a really fantastic way to support local communities、mm-hmm. um, and also the local handicraft industries, which often are in peril because of, you know, mass made goods from China infiltrating、mm-hmm. and things like that. Anyway, so. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things has been the Namibian fertility doll, which I bought from the Himba tribe. It's a little hand carved、um, Himba woman, complete with hair and got the, the ochre covering and a little outfit exactly as the women were wearing. And it really reminds me of the conversation that I had with them about,、mm. you know, why I was. 36 and didn't have a child, and that whole thing, and their shock at the way that I lived. And every time I look at it, I think of that and have a little giggle, but also think, yeah, yeah, you know, the values that we hold in life and really reflect on that. And、um, yeah, so that's a very special one. And also, because I'm looking at it right now,、mm-hmm. my Ethiopian coffee pot, which I never have been tempted to actually use because it's way too beautiful. It's this sort of black ceramic coffee pot. And everywhere you go in Ethiopia, they're serving you their famous coffee in these sorts of pots, but it's far too beautiful. And I use it as a vase. But、um, yes, it's one I'll be. Handing down to my grandchildren. Oh, it sounds like your grandchildren have some really wonderful pieces in store for them from their really cool, well traveled grandma. <laughs> actually, funnily enough, when I was a child, I was a little bit quirky and I actually started collecting treasures from a really young age,、uh, whether it was a World War II helmet from. Um, Portobello Road Market in Notting Hill, or I remember traveling to Greece and I bought. These rusty, weathered, heavy, ancient looking coins. And 
the vendor selling them um, told me this rather convincing story about Julius Caesar, and I was completely overjoyed to have found such rare and exciting treasures. And I handed over all of my pocket money, and I carefully guarded them on the journey home. And it was only a few years later that I realized that they were completely fake and that my parents didn't have the heart to tell me. So from then on, I've been a lot more careful about who I trust uh, and what objects I buy when I'm overseas. Oh my gosh, I love that. I can see it. I can see your little face lighting up. And you know what? Your parents couldn't couldn't break your heart by telling you the truth. I know. You know, sometimes it's a bit like that. You have to just kind of let the imagination run wild and then let them figure it out as they get older that that wasn't quite the reality. Totally. Or even if you partially know yourself, like when I was in Jerusalem, I bought these coin earrings and the, the man was sort of telling me, oh, Jesus used these coins. And I sort of knew. <laughs> I, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to believe that story and I'm I'm going to tell it. It's the storyteller in us that wants to believe these things yes. because we want to have these beautiful stories attached to the objects oh, that we have. Yes, and even even better if you can wear them and turn up at a party and somebody <laughs> says, where's that from? And you say, oh, I just picked this up in <laughs> India in the remote mountains of, you know, Ladakh or whatever. That's so true. And Nina, before we go, where are you dreaming of escaping to next? I am dreaming of heading to Bhutan. I have wanted to travel there for many years. I've been studying Buddhism for about 10 years and I would just love to go there and visit the temples and hopefully stay in a monastery if I can. And I think it would just be fascinating to visit a country that is carbon negative and that prioritizes gross national happiness over gross domestic product. Hmm, that's uh, something we can all get behind. Ah, oh, 100%. And I, I, I think just the landscapes and the architecture uh, and the fact that, you know, they've really kept themselves kind of clean of the modern world. I, I can't wait to see all of that. Well, I cannot wait to read the story that will eventually come out of that experience because I know that just by the way you write, it's going to be so beautiful and so descriptive. Um, Nina, thank you so much for sharing your travel tales with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. That was the Australian travel writer, Nina Karnakowski. If you're thinking of embarking upon your dream creative career, Nina's Make a Living Living might be just the book that you're looking for to escape the nine to five. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. And if you're looking for some more travel inspiration, you can find me on Instagram at Escape Artist Podcast. See you next week for another episode of The Escape Artist.